you can open up to the book of uh, Habakkuk, and it's going to be chapter 3, and then we're going to go to Psalm 130. Habakkuk chapter 3 is one of the, uh, the most classic revival texts, and, and uh, as we've had these prayer meetings and we commit our term to the Lord and commit our ministry to the Lord, uh, it's been our habit to, um, to just sort of look at a, a few words of Scripture about what uh, we can be encouraged by, about, by way of praying and the power of prayer, and to uh, um, uh, th- this, th- from, from now on, basically until the foreseeable future, what we'll do each term is actually just take a, uh, a historical snapshot to be able to do a study on one of the times that God has poured out his spirit in revival on his church in the response to the saints praying. So we're going to look tonight at the, the, the revival that happened in Scotland in July of 1839 and the following months under uh, a couple of guys you may be familiar with. You'll only be familiar with one of the guys if you read missionary biographies. That's W.C. Burns. Uh, anybody familiar with W.C. Burns? No. Nah. And then the other guy you may be more familiar with, he's got a Bible study, a Bible plan that he developed. This is Robert Murray McShane. Anybody familiar with Murray McShane? I use him as, a, as an example quite often because of his life-changing works that he wrote in his sermons, of course. But we're going to be looking at what God did through those men in Scotland in 1839. But in Habakkuk chapter 3, this is, a, this is a frequently uh, uh, taken text as a theme when the study of revival comes up in the church. And it reads like this, and in the context of, um, of God promising great wrath coming onto Israel as an answer to Habakkuk's prayer for justice in Israel. There was so much injustice. He prayed for God's justice. God promised that he would send a Gentile nation to destroy the evildoers in Israel. And Habakkuk was... Uh, shaken with fear at what that might mean. It wasn't quite the prayer, uh, the answer to prayer he was expecting. But this is a, a prayer of his in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Another translation which uh, has, has, has become quite popular, especially in older generations, was renew them in our day. It was Habakkuk saying that I, I understand wrath is coming, but I have heard of times and periods in Israel's history when, God, you have reached out in grace and mercy and power and brought revival and brought strengthening of our belief and brought reformation. And he says, in the midst of the wrath that you are just to pour out, the last line in verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. This is his prayer and cry. In the midst of the years, renew the works that I've heard of. Renew them in our day. In the midst of the years, revive it. That was one, one theme that we'll keep on coming back to as we do all of our studies in the revivals over the terms. You can also turn to Psalm 130, and you'll just keep it open as we will come there in a moment in the story. So we're, we're traveling all the way back to uh, uh, 1839, or well, really 1838 is where we'll start, but uh, uh, in Scotland, uh, uh, in a, a fairly small town called Dundee, and the church that is particularly uh, in, in, in notice is St. Peter's Church, which was McSh- uh, Murray McShane's church that he was a, a Presbyterian in. Uh, he was the, the minister over, he was ordained to the minister of that church at quite a young age. He was in his mid to early, mid and late 20s is when he... he he uh, 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 ministered there, and he died quite young because of his 
illness and his frailty of, of build. He was quite a sick young man growing up, and he became a minister of the gospel. And in 1838, he, he, uh, uh, he started to see what he calls the tricklings of, of, of water before the dam would burst. He started to see that as he would preach and, and he had this reputation for, though he was a young guy and though a lot of people didn't really trust young ministers at the time, of course, very reformed, very traditional, very structured sort of church life. And they had this young guy, McShane, preaching to them. And, and he had this reputation for dealing powerfully, honestly with sinners. Uh, in 1838, he tells of the story of one of the many uh, times that people came to faith sort of in these spatterings throughout the year before the revival year of 1839. He was uh, uh, dealing with a, an, a young lady who was anxious in her soul uh, about being able to come to, uh, come to God, and she was not entirely sure uh, uh, whether God would receive her. Uh, and, and she was, in, in, in McShane's mind, she was, uh, she was tarrying. She was walking when she should be running to Christ. She was thinking and umming and ahhing when she needed to flee and throw herself onto Christ's hand. And he said to her, you are a poor, vile worm. It is a wonder the earth does not swallow you up right now. And with that, he ended his pastoral counsel. She walked out of his office and she didn't come and talk to him again for months because of her offense but she laid in conviction over her sin for three months before she came to the altar one Sunday night as he was preaching, broken and finally convinced that Christ was able to save her, <clears throat> and she was finally saved. Murray McShane writes in his uh, biography, uh, in his journal about those days in 1838, all he was doing was preaching the gospel through the word with as much power as he could muster and praying all that he could, and he said, God glorified himself by the variety of sinners who came to receive grace and a variety of ways that they came to it. So, so he was just uh, being amazed that there were some who were long-term members of the church, even ex-pastors becoming Christians for the first time. And, and, and they were, it was not in huge waves, but it was here and there. And, and other people who had never stood foot inside a church were coming. Others were parents. Others were young children and teenagers. And he was just saying God was saving a, 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 a wide uh, a smattering of people from across the board. But in 1838, his sickness and his frailty came to a head and he was largely unable to do his ministry. He, was, he, he had developed quite a reputation for being a hard, zealous worker. And uh, one of the things he would do was visitations. He would go house to house to house each week. And that was hard work in the winters of Scotland. And yet he did it uh, uh, zealously, and that took a toll on him as they didn't have microphones in the day, they didn't have amplification. He was always yelling at his three, two, sometimes three services on a Sunday, his midweek meeting, and all of his visitations coming to people's houses. The winter and his sickness was taking a toll on him. So he, he went down to Edinburgh. This, was, this is just the kind of medical advice you get back in the day. You go, go somewhere with slightly less snow and sit in the sun for a little bit, or you'd get a prescription from your doctor to go for a walk. You're dying, you look like you've got tuberculosis, you're coughing every day, a walk will help, some fresh air. That, that, was, that was the medical advice that he got. So he went down to Edinburgh and he was uh, trying to recuperate there. And while he was there, there was uh, another pastor who knew that Murray McShane wanted to be a missionary. 
And especially on his heart was, was uh, the, the belief that in the end times, before Jesus comes back, there would be a large revival among the Jews. And that was something that he prayed for and labored for and desired the opportunity to go and minister to them and be a missionary if ever he got the chance. Well, while he was in Edinburgh, he was... Um, he was there and he was laying dead, uh, laying very, very sick, not, not dead. He was laying very, very sick and he wrote this in his, in his biography. He doesn't know he's going to leave the country and go to Israel, which we'll get to. He doesn't know anything of what's going to happen in the future and he puts this in his biography, his, in his journal. It says, I sometimes think that a great blessing may come to my people in my absence. I think God does not bless us when we're in the midst of our labors, just in case we say, my hand and my eloquence have done it. He removes us into silence and then pours down a blessing so that there is no room to receive it, so that all who see it will cry out, it is the Lord. May it be so with my dear people. So he's feeling sick. He's not sure if he's going to come back. He's been gone a few weeks and he's writing in his journal a zeal that God would glorify himself by reviving his people while he's not there. He's a very, very humble man that was always writing down how afraid he was of his own pride and self-glory. So when he uh, had gotten this idea from one of the other pastors that they would put together a small team and go to Israel, which would do two things. First of all, the sun and summer air and just go into the Middle East. That was literally a piece of medical advice that they would give people back then. Go, go on a boat and pop up into the Middle East. That'll, the round trip will do your lungs great. He was told to do that, so he decided to go to Israel. And uh, uh, his people were writing to him from Dundee, where he was the pastor. And they were writing to him saying that they were desperately worried if he would leave them. If, they, if he leaves them for any stretch of time, they're worried about what would happen in their midst. And he wrote to them and said, this is, just a, this is a clue of the kind of way that Murray McShane thought. He said, a minister will make a poor savior in the day of wrath. That was his letter back to his church. A minister will make a poor savior in the day of wrath. Let me go. Don't care if I'm not there. Now, in his, in his absence, he, he decided to use a, a, a man by the name of W.C. Burns to come and fill his pulpit in the couple of years. He didn't know how long he'd be gone. A couple of years that he was gone. And the thing about that is that this young guy, McShane, who was barely ordained himself, picks a younger man who was just uh, t- between 21 23, I, I, I forget the, his original starting uh, date. He was a young evangelist guy, not ordained, not even licensed to preach formally yet. So in other words, in those days, you go and preach, the police will lock you up because you don't have a license from the officiating church. So he doesn't even have that yet. And he's selected because of his zeal and his prayerfulness, at a, as a, and he's a son of a pastor down in Kilsyth. And so McShane uh, writes to him and, and meets him and asks if he would fill his pulpit. Now, nobody's a fan of that idea. Absolutely nobody thinks that that's a good idea except for McShane. Uh, uh, Burns receives it very carefully. But McShane put in a letter at the beginning of uh, um, 1839, uh, sorry, in 1838, he said, maybe there are many souls, he's writing this to Burns, maybe there are many souls that would never have been saved under my ministry who may be touched by God under yours. That's just his mindset. He was always looking for a way to God to glorify himself without McShane. 
So he goes on a trip to Israel from sort of mid-1838 throughout most of 1839. And on his trip, he's so, you can read his journal, he's so continuously praying for his people that God would pour out revival and he was desperate for their growth and their godliness. And in summer of 1839, so about June to September, he is desperate, sorry, June to about August, uh, he gets so desperately sick that he's actually on his deathbed. He, doesn't, uh, he, he, he fully expects to awake in heaven the following morning as he's so desperately sick and coughing and, and, uh, and throwing up and unable to keep things down. And he, uh, 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 as he's there, he's writing down in his journal all of these prayers and his friends are gathering with him, praying for revival for his people back in Dundee. That, that was his prayer. He, he was just desperate to bring them before the Lord before he himself went there. He ended up making a surprise recovery and returning back to Scotland in about that, uh, that uh, summer of 1839. In, in a, between August and September, he started making his way back. Well, let's jump the ocean. And while, 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 uh, while McShane is dying on a bed in Israel seeing very little fruit, a little bit here and there, people getting saved, but not huge fruit over in Israel, but he's praying. If we take a quick uh, shortcut trip back over to Scotland, in, that, in those same months, W.C. Burns starts saying that the, the works of revival start picking up. So in summer of 1839, in Scotland, W.C. Burns actually, he came to Dundee and he began all of his ministry. That was, that was McShane's area. And he's preaching in the church in St. Peter's and it can sit up to about a thousand people. And it wasn't entirely full. It was actually quite about half full. There wasn't all that many people who were in regular, regular attendance. But he seemed, they said, he seemed to live in prayer. That's what they said of this feeling pastor. They said, this guy lives and breathes in prayer. He was just always praying. Whenever you would find him in a spare moment, he would be on his knees praying desperately to the Lord. And he was asked uh, by his father and the other pastors down south to go down and do the communion season address. Now, this makes no sense for us in Reformed Baptist 2022, Logan. But back in Scotland, in the Presbyterian church back then, they would do communion probably once a year. And they would do it sort of all of the churches around would all travel if you were approved and if you were on the, if the elders had, a, had thought that you were holy enough, you were living consistently enough with your profession, you knew the catechism, you had been attending in church enough, they would put you on the list and you would be able to grab a ticket and go down to where they were doing communion for the, the long weekend holiday and that would be your communion for the year. You went on the list, you don't get to be a communicant. You could go down, you can watch, but you can't take communion. So these were the, these enormous meetings that they would have, and on the Friday, so, so they would meet Friday, Saturday, Sunday, preaching uh, each of those evenings, and then the Monday as well. On the Friday, he was uh, scheduled to preach, and look at Psalm 130, where you opened up before, Psalm 130. He preached from Psalm 130, verse 1 and 2, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So he's, he's, he's got pretty, pretty much every human reason to believe that everyone gathering there is a Christian because they just got checked off by the heads of their denominations to go down and receive communion as Christians. And yet he has the boldness, he has the audacity, and he has the, the zeal to believe that there are many who are unsaved and he wants to pray for them and preach to them out of the spirit of that text, crying out to the Lord in pleas of mercy from the depths. 
He loved John Owen's treatment of that. Uh, John Owen had written a book on that about, about spiritual depression and lack of assurance and, and being a false convert. And he loved that, so he went to preach it to those people. And it was so powerful that they asked him also to preach on Saturday and then also to preach on Sunday. All of the other pastors who were elderly guys were just saying, you have some kind of anointing. The people are responding to your preaching. You just take the preaching. So he took it on, Friday, on Saturday and Sunday. On Saturday, he preached verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That was his text. Can you imagine a zealous soul winner who wants to do nothing more than convince people to be saved by the blood of Jesus, being given an hour and tens of thousands of people in an open field and given that verse? to just tear them to shreds and throw them in those tattered pieces to the cross of Jesus Christ. And he extolled Christ and he lifted him up and, and there was such a move. There was, there was so many people visibly being moved by this sort of preaching that they decided to give him Sunday as well. And so he preached on Sunday afternoon and after that Sunday afternoon sermon to the communicants, this huge festival basically, he, he announced that tomorrow morning, uh, sorry, no, Tuesday morning, he was going to have a... A, a, an open meeting for non-Christians and just everybody in the communities because he had lived in that community as a non-Christian growing up or as a rebellious youth and we would laugh at the kind of things that he would classify as a rebellious youth when you're in a very religious house in uh, Presbyterian Scotland. But nonetheless, he had lived as a non-Christian, had later been converted. And he wanted to have an open-air meeting where he could preach to the people who he had grown up with. And so they announced on Tuesday, now this is the 23rd, of the 7th, 1839, 23rd of July, on the Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., they all went to the open uh, area in the, in, the, in the marketplace, and it started to rain, it, which seemed like it was going to just destroy the whole point of the meeting because, because people back in those days, they, you don't just stroll into church. If you're a non-Christian, you don't like going to church. You don't go into these big cathedrals. And yet, as it started raining, his, the other pastors, he says, acted like sheepdogs and just hustled and bustled everybody into the church that could fit so that he went around the back to try and get himself in. At 10 a.m., everybody was indoors, and he stood up, and he opened to Psalm 110, verse 3. And he writes this in his journal. Psalm 110, verse 3, is what he is going to preach that morning. But this is what he writes in his journal. <clears throat> he says, when I entered the pulpit, and you've got to remember, the picture it, in the pulpit those days, it's like we love Anthony, but this, this, isn't, this isn't a Presbyterian Scottish pulpit. The pulpits, you, you wouldn't see what's on the other side while you're sitting over in the chamber. As you come up, you're climbing stairs. Sometimes you're, you're spiraling up them, and then finally you can see the congregation as you're standing in your beautiful stone or carved wooden mahogany pulpit. And he sees in front of him, he says this, I, I entered the pulpit, and I saw before me an immense multitude from the town and neighborhood filling the seats, filling the stairs, lining the passages, all over the porches, all in their ordinary clothes. Right? That's surprising because it, when he says the village people, he means people who don't normally come to church. And when he says ordinary clothes, uh, this is blasphemy to wear in a Scottish church in the 1800s. He's just got people in their work clothes. None of them are in their Sunday dress. They're just lining it. What a strange sight to see in that sort of day. An extremely strange sight. It would have been like seeing all the lepers follow Jesus into the temple to be, to be preached to. It was a, a similar kind of scene. And uh, including many of the most abandoned of our population, many of the left behind, the lost, the unsaved, the poor. I began, I think, by singing the, 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 the first psalm. I can't remember this 
picture is, is blurry. I began by singing one of the Psalms and was affected deeply when in reading it, I came to these lines. The time for favor, which was set, behold, is now come to an end. That would have been one of the, 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 the Psalms put to a Scottish meter and they only sung the Psalms in Scottish Presbyterianism and they were singing one of them and he was deeply affected by that line. He said the word now in that phrase her time of favor, which was set, behold, is now come to an end. He says, that word now, Burns wrote, touched my heart as with a divine power and encouraged the sweet hope that the set time really was this moment at hand. As if he could feel God saying through that line from the Psalms, this is the moment of me being at hand. And so he started to preach on Psalm 110 verse 3, which says that uh, in the day of his power, your people will be will offer themselves freely. From the ESV, it says, your people, this is the father speaking to the son, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. That's what he preached on. Then the day that Jesus was ruling as king, his people, and he made arguments, he said, uh, 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 logically he argued that, that his people were those given to him before the foundation of the world. This is the elect. And in the day that Christ ordains, the elect will come willingly to the divine son, the king. And he said, number one, this coming will willingly entails that they will be saved. They will be willing to be saved by his righteousness alone. Number two, it means that they will be willing to bear his, uh, uh, his weight on their backs. They will be willing to, to have him as their Lord. And thirdly, it means that they are willing to bear his cross and so suffer for him in life. That, that's what he argued from those verses and started compelling that people would so come. And then he's told this story, uh, which is another 200 years, almost to the year, 200 years before him. So we're going back a fair way now. This is in the 1630s at another communion gathering in Scotland, a younger guy called John Livingston was asked to preach at the, uh, at the communion session. And he was preaching, and it was outside, and, and Burns is telling this story. Uh, Livingston is preaching, and, and he's, he's wrapping up to the end of his, his sermon, about an hour long, and, and it starts to spit rain, and everybody grabs their umbrellas and grabs their coats and grabs their bags and puts them over their head in order to protect themselves. And in a moment of, in a moment of divine inspiration, he says, you have your coats and umbrellas to save you from the water that falls from the sky, but what do you have to cover you from the wrath of God that will be poured down from you on the day of judgment? And they were struck with such a sense of divine awe that he was given, he says, he was given energy to preach for another hour long. Imagine thousands of people, no amplification, open air, preaching, no one walking away because they're bored. No one napping in the middle of that. And it, it was told that at the end of that day, there were 500 people who put their, their moment of conversion to that part of the sermon. 500 people of the most holy people in Scotland were converted. And uh, W.C. Burns tells that story as he's preaching to them. And he says that while he, while he was preaching, there were some audibly screaming out in agony at the thought of the conviction of their sins. It says there were strong Scottish men and even farmers who had fainted on the ground as though dead. So they had started at 10 a.m. and he did not get done preaching until 3 p.m. Five hours later, nobody was banging for it to close. No one was waiting for lunch. Everybody was there, filling, filled to the brim, hanging on his every word. He preached for five hours. They went home, had a break, came back for 6 p.m. 
And then every night while he's down there, they they get done preaching and they were so struck with what God was doing in the people's midst as they were just uh, uh, clamoring for salvation and and, and fainting at the thought of their sins and coming to him for, for uh, for salvation in Jesus Christ. They just started doing weekly meetings. It was meant to only be a long weekend trip. And instead he writes back home and says, God's moving down here. And he just stays there. And every evening they do prayer meetings where he would give them an address and they would pray together for salvation and for revival. And, and this went on for, for much of the week. In fact, uh, it was told you, you couldn't really travel very far throughout the day, throughout the week, without just bumping into small groups of people gathered together on the sides of the roads, outside of bars, near their workplaces, gathering and praying that God's move of his spirit would be lasting and genuine. People just praying for holiness in their lives. Uh, there was, uh, there was uh, a great uh, day where they, they came out and they were burning all of their immoral books they were burning their atheistic books. They were burning their, their witchcraft and things like that in a great uh, 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 fire in the middle of the city. And they were throwing their sinful possessions in. And it was said that in every single home you would hear singing. He says one of the marks that this was genuine was that fathers went home after being converted and started their family worship again. They started leading their children to the Savior in prayer. They started studying the Bible with their wives. This was a mark of the move of God. So then October 8th, that was, that was end of July. He stays there an extra two weeks in order to see the work that God is doing there. And he finally goes back up to Dundee on the 8th of August, 1839. And he arrives there on a uh, uh, Thursday. This was the day that as they line up the, the months, McShane was at this moment lying, dying on his bed, praying for his congregation back in Dundee that God would give them a blessing of the Spirit as he's about to pass into eternal bliss. That's the night that he's praying. And Burns arrived back up into Dundee. It was a Thursday, which was the night that they always had uh, 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 prayer meetings at the church. And he, he went into, a, uh, into the meeting and he, he started to tell them about what God had been doing down south. And he started to tell them about the amazing things that God was doing. He preached to them about the, the power of the gospel and all of that. And he said, at the end of their prayer meeting, he said, if anybody wants to come down and to be saved, and or if you want to pray that God would do such a work in our midst, please meet me in the vestry after church. So they had a little door to the side, wasn't to the restrooms, but was to the little vestry where you could go and speak with the pastor in a, in a, uh, in a, in a teaching type uh, classroom sized room. And he went in there down the back, back door and after the singing had finished, he opened the doors and he said it was like a dam had burst as people streamed in and streaming down every face was tears. Most people crying out for salvation, realizing they had never truly experienced the work of the Spirit. Many people praying that the city itself would be turned upside down with the preaching of the gospel through revival. And all of this, McShane did not hear about until nearly a month later when he was in Germany on a boat heading home. And he says that terrible trip from Germany back to Scotland was the most blissful, beautiful time of prayer and praise to God that he had experienced in his life. So now we're back to McShane. He'd been away into Israel, had heard that there was a revival under another guy, some other upstart dude in his church, and he had absolutely zero jealousy whatsoever. He arrived on a Thursday, which again, the Thursday night was a prayer meeting night. So he got there. He was so keen to share with them. But as he walked into the pulpit, he hardly recognized hundreds of people that were in his building. 
Most people had been saved and were new there. Other people had come in order to hear the stories about his trip to Israel and seeing so many people that he had not before preached Christ to, he could do nothing else but preach to them uh, the, the, the Savior Jesus Christ and the cross that he bore. So he started to preach and some people were in constant tears, crying the whole night. And then others were crying out in fear again. And he says, when they sung the psalm, he said, one of the marks of of the, the spirit working in the church is that when they sung, it was the sweetest worship that he had ever been a part. All these new people didn't know their Presbyterian four-part harmonies, but they were there uh, singing the psalms. And he says, it was as if they were, in my absence, they had learned to praise a present God. He says it's as if in his absence, God had made his presence felt among them so that they, they, they sung and they praised him as if he was in the room with them, which he no doubt is, whenever his people gather. He says, uh, yeah, so he, he refuses to talk about his travels. He only talks about his, his Lord. And as he goes out the back to open the doors and go home, the entire street through the village was lined with people who had been trying to get into the church and listen, and they would not let him go home because they'd missed the sermon. So again, he sets up in the street and just with the, with the opportunity that he has by the firelight, he starts to preach Jesus Christ. And again, afterwards, people sing and they pray and they cry and they stay together through the early hours of the morning out in the cold nights of the street. This was what started to happen. He, he goes home and he writes in his journal that night, to thy name, O Lord, to thy name alone be all the glory. Full stop. And he started having uh, people, that this would go on for, for weeks and months and it would stretch into the few years uh, as it slowly um, uh, calmed down a little bit. But, but other pastors would come to the area to sort of test the revival to see if it was genuine. It was a pretty audacious thing they would do. You, if you said you've got revival and all these people are coming to salvation, all the other guys in your denomination come down to assess whether or not it looks legit. So they would come down and many of the guys who came got converted. They were critical. They were skeptical. They didn't like the idea of all the the spirit moving in such uh, 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 untoward manner and people falling over. And it just sounds a little bit Anabaptist. You know, all these these are the the ancient types of Pentecostals. Yeah, this is what it sounds like. They're just out of control and they come and they're saved. Old women were coming up to McShane to complain to him after church and they would sit through his, his sermon, get saved and thank him for the word. It was an amazing move of God. Many pastors who were genuinely saved came to the area just to help him because he was having thousands upon thousands of extra people to try and, try and pastor, which he couldn't do. And in all of this that, that, we, that, we, uh, that, we, that we hear and we read, and I, I just can't go, go we, we could go further, but we just don't have the time. But, but if we can take some lessons from this revival, this time when God was gracious enough to open the floodgates and pour out his spirit of grace on a people, there's a few lessons that we can learn. Number one, It is that revival is not an alternative to reformed or sound theology. There's no excuse to sort of hear this and go, yeah, of course they had a crazy revival. They were the undiscerning types. They They were the excitable types. They were the eccentric types. They were the types who were always looking and pining for that sort of thing. It just wasn't the case. I would go as far to say with absolute confidence there's no one in this room right now that is more reformed, more well-studied, more fully catechized, more educated in theology and doctrine from the Bible than the men who led this. No one in this room can top these guys in terms of strong, sound theology. One of the people who knew Burns, they said he was always living and walking in the prayer of the Spirit 
And if you knew somebody who you, if you knew a preacher and, and somebody told you, oh, they're anointed, they're just always walking and living and praying in the spirit, you would assume you know what kind of preaching they're going to be doing. They'll be in skinny jeans. They'll be in the dark room. They'll be fog lights, all this sort of stuff. Well, the, the same person wrote down and said, uh, that power that rested upon him did not affect his preaching. It sounds like an insult to his preaching. But, but what they mean is, they go on to say, it was sensible, clear, orthodox, unobjectionable, and in, in that, indeed, he never altered. Like as the revival piled on, Burns never got more and more excited realizing what was happening and start preaching unorthodox sermons. He just stayed uh, sound in his theology. He says, there was uh, never a, a mixture of excitement. There was never any eccentricity or extravagance of doctrine or even the extreme pressing of one particular point longer than is normal. <laughs> Funny. Uh, but a steadfast keeping within the lines of received truth as not expecting conversions by any special way of stating the gospel, right, get that, he did not preach in such a way that he expected to see conversions by any special way of preaching the gospel, but by the power of the Spirit accompanying it. The clearest, the people, the churches with the clearest theology should be the people who expect the most to see the most powerful works among them because they have the scripture most unadulterated in their midst. There's absolutely no room for us to start looking at things like the praying for revival and say, that's ecstatic, that's fanatical. Maybe, maybe you're dissatisfied now with sound preaching and so you need to get excited and fill the rooms and get more money and all of the rest and make for a good story. You're hungering for excitement. We never need to think that way. These guys are a great example for us. Or the apostles who saw thousands of people converted at their preaching are a great example for us. Never think that we don't need revival because we have sound preaching. Never think that. And never think we won't have revival because we have too sound preaching. What we need is sound preaching ignited among the people by the Spirit of God. That's lesson number one. It is not, revival is not an alternative to sound theology. Secondly, an expectation of God's powerful outpouring of His grace is the only way to honor God in ministry. A, a spirit of expectation that God is always about to pour out his spirit of grace is the only way to do church ministry in a way that honors God's promises. If there is no expectation, there is no spirit or, or sense or tone or tenor of the church that says that it has to be around the corner. It, it hasn't been before. God, this is the ordinary way that God works. The word is preached. He saves many people. He doesn't lose ground. If we have an expectation of God's powerful outpouring of his grace, that is the only way to honor God in ministry. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, fitting to quote him, he's a Scottish guy who loves this story of this revival. He said in a study on revival, he says, you cannot read about seasons when God has come among his people without having some sense that you may never really have ever worshipped God at all. There's always a sense that you read these guys, you hear these stories, you hear what God did in revival, and you just think, I don't think I've ever prayed to God properly. I don't think I've ever sat through a sermon where I'm expecting that. That expectation is so important in the pew, 
and in those preparing the sermons. I, I love, you, you go and read in some of the later months McShane's journals, and he says of this one t- particularly terrible night that he didn't preach all that well, there was not that many people, and the worst part of the night was that was, there was only 12 conversions. Have you ever been in a service when there was even 12 genuine conversions? And he's disappointed with that. He says that, uh, uh, commenting on 1 Timothy 4, he says, Paul says, in doing this, in preaching soundly, in doing this, you shall save both yourself and your hearers. That is a rule of ministry for us. In the case of faithful ministry, where the pastor is doing his job right, success is the rule. A lack of success is the odd exception. He says, Paul says, by doing this ministry, you will save yourself and you will save your hearers. He had an expectation that was strong and the Lord exceeded all of his hopes. There's a level of expectation that is proven by our prayers. Our prayers prove to us and to those around us and to God, they are the honest marker of how expectant we actually are that God would work. What are we praying for? Is it always safety? Is it always travel? Is it always that this person would be blessed and, 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 and generic things like that? Or are we desperate in a way that we're on the edge of our seat, assuming that God is ready to pour out his spirit of revival if we would pray and hope and trust in his sovereignty enough? I was thinking if we would just, if we were to see just each of us even in this room tonight, just three or four or five people over the next 12 months in our own circles, maybe one family member, one co-worker, one random people you meet, one random person you meet, one, per, uh, uh, one, one person that's a neighbor of yours, something like that, just a, a, a small scatter, spattering of people in your life. If you were just to see three or four or five people converted, just the people in the room tonight, we would, have, we would double the size of our church in one year if that happened over 12 months. That is not the sort of thing that you would call an immediate outpouring of revival where 500 or 3,000 are saved in a moment. And if each of us just saw three different people, five different people in our life over a year saved, this church would double in a year. We would call it revival and we would be telling the stories of that for years to come. And that sounds like it's aiming way too low because it is. We have the sort of the audacity to pray to God and say, Jesus is on the throne. He's now saving his lost sheep for who he bled and died. Please, God, renew that work in our day. Burns actually ended up finding out. And this is the sort of people we want to be. He ended up finding out that the day that, uh, the, the Tuesday that he was preaching to, the, to, the, to, to all of the community, that the revival broke out in Kilsyth. The night before, unbeknownst to, 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 to Burns and unbeknownst to anybody else, and they didn't know that Burns was going to have this particular uh, uh, revival uh, sort of sermon lined up, they just started, they got together, and this group of Christians had prayed throughout the entire night together that God would pour out his spirit on the, on the community. And they happened to just rock up to the church on the next day. It's that kind of people that, 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 we, that, uh, uh, that are used especially by God in the, the working of revival. He says that they had the, the hope, as he met them later and heard, heard about them years later, he says, they had the hope, no, the certain anticipation of God's glorious appearing from impressions that they had upon their souls of God's approaching glory and majesty when they were pleading at his footstool in prayer. That's the kind of expectation I want us to have, an expectation that God wants to, can, and wills to send revival to his people who pray earnestly for it, where the gospel is made known. And lastly, just a, a lesson. If we pray, lesson number one is that revival is not some kind of alternative to sound theology. Secondly, expectation of God's powerful outpouring is necessary to a God-honoring ministry. 
And then thirdly, is that we ought to have the McShane-style utter lack of hunger for personal glory. You know, we might, we might pray for revival for years to come, but, but James says, remember in chapter 4, you pray but you don't receive because you're asking with the wrong motives. McShane had the right motive. He was willing to die as long as God was glorified. He was willing to see revival or not as long as God was glorified. But he bled in prayer. He stayed up late. He almost killed himself with how little he slept because his ultimate motive above all was that the son would get the glory that he bled to procure. That ought to be our highest and unending motive. So can you bow your heads? I'm just going to pray over us one last time before we, we break into our three uh, or yeah, three groups, and, and then behind us there's going to be some slides to pray through. We want to pray that God would give to us a heart that is expectant, that is humble, not seeking our own glory, and that which, that which rightly puts the, the faith in the, in the power of the Spirit. Father God, we thank you for the revealed word. We thank you for the way that you have given and inspired and then preserved the Bible throughout the ages, and that we stand in such a such a blessed time of history where we can have it in our language, have it right in front of us. And Lord, as we read it, we recognize what Habakkuk said. And we can, we can resonate with what Habakkuk said as we read the, the book of Acts and as we read the, the accounts even sometimes in the Old Testament. Uh, we read what happened under Paul's preaching and, and Philip's preaching, some of them not even, even apostles, but, but those who would take the gospel and see it preached and see, see biblical ministry started and worked hard in, Lord, and you love to honor the, the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit by giving conversions to where that gospel is preached. And Lord, not all of us are called to preach the gospel formally in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ordained way. Not all of us are going to be missionaries and not all of us are going to be McShane's or even Burns. And God, we don't want to be that. We don't care what we are. We can be rose petals thrown to the ground that are treaded on by the donkey that you are riding. We don't care. We simply wish to be a part of the path that gives you the glory you deserve. So we pray, Lord, let, let Hope Church's name burn and die and be forgotten. Let, let each of us be forgotten by, by people in the years to come. Let, let each one of our prayers go unrecorded. Let each one of our sermons fail to be remembered. Let each one of our, our, our houses and our names and our stories never be told. But Lord Jesus Christ, please glorify yourself by using us, by your spirit, igniting the fuel of the gospel in our midst so that Christians have a greater sense of the importance of holiness so that we have a greater conviction over our sin, so that we have a greater expectation of the power of the Spirit through the gospel, and so that we labor all the more zealously like these two men in the story tonight did in order to see your church built up through the ministry of the gospel. So Lord, please, in our ministries, send your Holy Spirit's reviving, powerful work. Send us to the Bible, and in the Bible, send us reviving power. Father God, as we now go and we break into our groups in order to pray, would you receive glory through our submission, through our willingness to receive whatever in life you send to us? And yet, Lord, would you fill up, would you honor yourself through our faith and our expectation that you love to answer the prayers of your children that you've sanctified by your son's blood? So, Father God, would you bless our time in prayer together and would you honor your son in our midst? And everybody said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. 
We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.